Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, that's the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is God's word. Good evening, Matt. My welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Uh, one of the ministers here. It's lovely to uh, to see you, uh, whether you're visiting or um, our old friends. It's great to gather together. Great to have God's word here. Let's pray as we begin. Father, that's a magnificent song we've just sung. The certainty that we can have in this life because of your word and that you speak that word continually to us today. So would we hear it rightly? Would your spirit convey it to our minds? Would it transform us so we respond to you rightly? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 14 is quite a simple chapter really in the Bible. How do you respond to Jesus Christ? 
That's it. What do you make of him? How are you going to respond to Jesus Christ? Well, there's a whole number of different responses that are there. But he's, as he's presented here, he's really not a bland figure. You know, poor David Cameron is having a hammering at the moment, whether he deserves it or not. Leave that to you. But, uh, you know, last week's the comment, you're a man or a mouse. It's a slightly embarrassing thing to say to the Prime Minister, isn't it? Are you just a mouse who's just too timid to, to say anything to upset anyone else? Or are you going to stand up and lead? Well, you would never say that to Jesus Christ, because when you meet him, he's a divisive character. He's controversial in many ways. And really this section that we started last week looking at, Matthew's Gospel, chapters 14 to 18, you really see a parting of the ways. Jesus obviously divides people. Some follow him and are thrilled to do so. Many are put off from him. I mean, it's a bit too clean cut to say it's a section, but uh, Matthew does does, does, um, chop up his gospel, I think, into slightly different sections. There's there at the bottom of the sheet if you're interested. You get this marker every so often, when Jesus had finished saying. So Matthew's gospel tends to have a block of action, then a block of teaching. A block of action, then a block of teaching. And so we now have a block of action in chapters 14. We'll get to the, 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 the teaching, and then it sort of ends. It works a little bit like that, but you can be too clear cut. But if you were here last week, we made a start at looking at how you respond to Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, Jesus tells one of his most famous stories, probably, the story of the soils. A farmer goes out and scatters seed and so and, on, and throws it out onto different land. Some falls on the path and it's just taken away by the birds. He throws out the word, he speaks and people just reject him completely. Some falls upon um, thorns, it grows up for a while but then gets choked. Some forms on stony ground, it grows up for a while but then the cares of this world destroy it. Some falls, I'm abbreviating, some falls on good soil. And it flourishes. He tells that story in Matthew 13. And then you see it in people's lives. In chapter 14. That's what's going on here. You see those different responses played out. So if you were here last week, we saw at the end of 13, chapter 13, uh, the bit that's headed, a prophet without honor. Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. And they reject him. He offends them. He's too familiar to them. And they just... Just too humiliating to bow to one they know as the carpenter's son. Then uh, chapter 14, those first 12 verses, uh, Jesus goes to um, John the Baptist. is killed by Herod. There's rejection there as well. So essentially the message of Jesus, rejected in his hometown in Nazareth, rejected in the palace. And we come to today to well, th- the three other responses that are recorded here. Two are mixed. So he comes to the disciples, they have a mixed response. He comes to Peter, yeah, a fairly mixed response. And then finally you get, very briefly, to the people of Gennesaret. Where's that? Who knows? But they respond very positively. They're the model response given to us at the end of the chapter. And Matthew is asking us, what about you? How do you respond? Call yourself a Christian? Maybe not. If you call yourself a Christian, how do you respond? Is it a sort of mixture? Well, you'd be quite at home with the disciples here. Wouldn't you call yourself a Christian? Well, what do you make of these guys? Three different responses we get modeled for us in the chapter. Two are fairly mixed, and then one is the good soil, the positive one. So let's jump in and look at them. The first, then, this first little instance, famous one. 
Jesus feeding the 5,000. What we see is the first response is, well, it's a mixture of uh, obedience and, fa- and um, hesitancy. Let's call, let's try and summarize it this way. Feeding hesitantly, verses 13 to 21. Familiar story, perhaps. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only uh, account of Jesus's, the only narrative of Jesus's life that appears in all four Gospels. Why is that? I have no idea. You can tell me. I think it's important, clearly, for all of them. What's it doing here? It's showing a response. Um, well, let's, let's jump in and have a look. Verse 13 of chapter 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Okay. So Jesus hears about Herod, whether it's that Herod has killed John the Baptist or whether it's a reference back to verse 2, he's heard that uh, Herod is after him, it's not entirely clear, but he's heard about Herod and doesn't like it. He withdraws, presumably to pray, we're not told that, but he withdraws, he needs some time on his own. So off he goes, tries to escape the crowds, the crowds will track him down, he finally lands on the other side looking for a bit of peace and quiet. And ta-da, we've got a surprise party for you. Here we are, come and heal us. And Jesus, well, he's very good. He has compassion on them. Because that's what he's like. He gives and he gives. I'm not like that. I've had quite a busy day, quite a long day. If I got home tonight and my wife said, ta-da, I know you're wanting some downtime, but look. I've got 50 people who want to have intense conversations with you for the next five hours. Ta-da! I'm a little bit of grump might appear, because that's the way I'm wired. Desiring some downtime, denied, grumpy. That's sort of the equation in my life. Jesus, he needs time on his own, presumably to pray to his father. Doesn't get it? Compassion. Because he gives, and he gives. And then verse 15 says, in the evening approaches, uh, that's a flexible time marker in the Greek, late afternoon, could be something like tea time, we might say in, in the UK, it's a flexible time. But as evening approached, or late afternoon, the disciples came to him and said, look, this is remote, it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Well, that's very sensible. Boss, we're on the case. We've looked around, there's no food Send them off, not just to one town, that'll overwhelm them. We've got a very sensible idea. Scatter them to the different villages. They can go to uh, Tesco Metro and Sainsbury's Local and Morrison's, whatever it is, Mini. And um, let them, send them all off and all will be fed. We're on it. Jesus replies, and this is the only little phrase, this first phrase that's unique to Matthew's account. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. Every other side was you're thinking. Mm-hmm. You give them something to eat. Well, verse 17. Boss, we're ahead of the game. We've gone and done our audit. Five and two. We've got seven things to eat. That's not going to do the business. But that in one sense is an entirely reasonable observation they've made right there. Very sensible. You and I may well have done the same. Okay, that's not entirely. But what does Jesus do? 
Verse 18, bring them here to me, the five loaves of bread and the two fish, bring them. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, the disciples gave them to the people, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Golly. Now one of the unique things about Matthew's Gospel, it is the disciples who do it. And I think part of the point of us reading this is Jesus is saying, you give them something to eat. We've got nothing to give them. Here you go. He gives them the resources and three times... Uh, End of verse 19, the disciples, the disciples, the disciples, they do it. Jesus gives the resources, but the disciples go out. I think he's teaching them that that's what's going to go on going forward, I think. But here are two things that we can certainly note, okay? Two things to learn from this. The first is this. Jesus offers a banquet that satisfies. Okay? That's the first thing I think we're meant to take notice of. Jesus offers a banquet that satisfies. Once they've finished, it's no one goes away a little bit disappointed. It's not like the, the, the disappointing church lunch you might get elsewhere, certainly not here, where it's lunch and, hmm, that doesn't quite do it. Should we just nip next door and uh, double up? No, look, verse 20, everyone goes away with groaning bellies. They're all satisfied. And the disciples pick up 12 basketfuls of pieces that were left over. I think that's meant to represent... Twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone there is satisfied, but there is more than enough for the others who aren't there. The nation of Israel is divided into twelve tribes. There's enough for all of them too, if only they'd come. Jesus can satisfy anyone who comes to him. And this is not surprising. The power that's here, the compassion of Jesus, because this had always been predicted. that In the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and fulfill people's needs, would satisfy where they were lacking. So in the language of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, uh, familiar verses perhaps to some, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 55, Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters and you have no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen! Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. And Jesus comes on the scene and the people of Israel are there in front of him and he satisfies them and says there's enough for all who aren't here as well. He satisfies as the promised one in the Old Testament was always going to. And this, this sort of, this feeding, this, if we can put it this way, this banquet, it's put next to Herod's banquet, the two are juxtaposed. And if you were here last week, you'll know, Herod's banquet was full of pride from him, arrogance from the people who were there, and eventually murder. That's the king's banquet of Israel, the pagan king Herod. Whereas Jesus' banquet is, with his generosity, there's provision, there's satisfaction. Because Jesus is the one who satisfies. That's what this is meant to show us. 
But of course, you read on in the Bible, and the first, the very first thing, the most significant picture we're given of when you get to heaven is a banquet. Jesus is the one who gets you there. Jesus is the one who satisfies. That's the first thing I think that's meant to notice here. Jesus offers a banquet that satisfies. Second thing, if I could put it this way, faith counts beyond seven. Faith can count beyond the number seven. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 17, when the disciples, look down again, verse 17, the disciples' response to Jesus, on one hand, it's very sensible and realistic. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. True. True observation. That was all that was in the cool bag. Nothing else. That was all that was there. On the other hand, Jesus has just said, the people, the 5,000 blokes, plus all the women and kids, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. And they have been with Jesus for quite some time and have seen him perform miracles. Perhaps the response he's after there is, how? A bit more, go on, go on then. We, We know you can do extraordinary things. Go on then. Because the faith Jesus is looking for Faith is able to hear a command of Jesus, say, I don't know how that adds up, but I'm going to give it a go. Feed these 5,000 people. I've got seven. I've got seven things. Five loaves, two fish. I don't know how it adds up, but Jesus has told me to do it. I'll give it a go. And sometimes the Christian life is like that. You hear a command of Jesus, you think, I don't know how this quite adds up, but I'll give it a go. If I'm honest, that's how I became a Christian. So 20 odd years ago, investigating all sorts of things, investigated the Christian faith, and I reached the point where I thought, uh, it might be true. Well, I don't know. But I got this question, and I got this question, and I got this question, and I got this question. I remember going to see a friend of mine one night, saying, okay, Seb, what about this? This, if, if you answer this question, I'll just move a little closer. Come on, yeah, I'm, and, uh, and him just saying to me, come on, come on, come on. Give it a go. And I reached the point and thought, actually, that's a fair comment. I've observed who Jesus is. I've learned a lot about him. I, I think I can trust him. I don't have all the answers yet. But I can work out those answers with him. In faith, here's a command of Jesus and says, well, I can only add to seven, but I'll give it a go. Or, um, let's try and ground it a bit more. Um, you may have just moved to London. I think, brilliant. I'm getting paid for the first time, perhaps. Wonderful, a salary. How much? Whoa, that's a huge amount of money. And then you arrive and think, hmm, whatever it is, £28,000. It sounded big. It's not so big now. There's rent, and there's transport, and there's food, and there's £2.50 left. And uh, you read your Bible, and God says, you should give generously to my work. And you think, yeah, but I'd like to give generously, but the truth is, I've forked out for all these other things, and I've got, well, I've got five coins and two notes, and that's seven, and I don't see how it adds up. But faith says, I've heard a command of God, and I'm going to trust him, I'll give it a go. Even though I can only count to seven. I'm going to just trust God beyond that. Or you may be, you'd be sat here and, uh, you know, oh golly, um, 
Molly at church. I think I don't think there is a Molly. If there is, apologise. Molly at church. She, you know, she clearly needs some practical help and, and would love someone to come alongside her and encourage her. Golly, but you know what? This week I've met with seven people and I'm exhausted. I've got no more to give. Well, maybe that's right. And maybe you need to go home and go to bed. But maybe, maybe faith says, oh, I can only count to seven, but God can provide beyond that. Maybe that's right. See, faith can count beyond seven and trusts God. One of the nicest things I read over the summer was a, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, in, uh, particularly in the 1930s, opposed the rise of Adolf Hitler and, and during the Second World War uh, actively conspired against him, uh, sought to bring him down. Uh, eventually was uh, killed uh, just two weeks before uh, the US uh, um, went into the concentration camp where he'd been kept. Great hero in many ways and a wonderful Christian man. Uh, and under enormous pressure, you see the letters he wrote from prison when he was allowed to, and he sort of smuggled a number out. Wonderful letters encouraging other people, even though he's living daily with the pressure of uh, of death. One of the nicest things, to my mind, that was said at his memorial service, which was actually held in London uh, after the war, uh, the bloke who stood up and gave the address, said of Bonhoeffer, he borrowed strength from God and lent it to others. Isn't that a lovely phrase? He borrowed strength from God and lent it to others. He thought, golly, I'm at the end of my resources, but I'm, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to borrow from the Lord in order to serve others. So you see the disciples doing here, just about, eventually. So faith counts beyond seven. So there's the first response. The first response that we looked at tonight. The disciples there's a mixture, isn't it? There's hesitancy, but eventually there's obedience. So they feed hesitantly. There's the first little response. Let's look at the second. This unusual story of not Jesus walking on water. You get that in most of the gospel accounts, but Peter. Peter as well. That only crops up here. So the second thing we got, there was feeding hesitantly. Second thing is there's walking fearfully. Verses 22 to 23. Let me read them again. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now what's Jesus doing here? He sends the disciples on ahead of him into this great storm, and he how's he going to catch them up? Well, he He's Jesus, he can do what he wants, but what's going on? He's not, he's sending them into a crisis deliberately in order to grow their faith. That seems to be the picture of what's going on here. So he sends them on their way, he goes to pray, dismisses the crowd. Then what happens? Well, verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And they've been battling this storm clearly for quite some time. If it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they're probably exhausted, probably at their wit's end, which might explain the slight Scooby-Doo moment of verse 26. It's a ghost! And uh, there's sort of some bewilderment. What is this coming on? It's this. What is going on here? There's great confusion. But the issue, well, the issue is very obvious in verse 26. They're scared. So verse 26, they were terrified. Verse 26, they cry out in fear. Verse 27, Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
The issue is fear of who, what is this coming to their fright? Verse 27, Jesus' response tackles that head on. Take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. It literally is quite blunt. It's like a, like an army officer. Courage. I am. No fear. And, um, they respond to that. Well, do they respond to that? That amount of the story you get in, um, you get in John, you get in Mark. The rest of it, these verses 28 to 32, they, they're unique to Matthew's gospel here. But what's going on? So Peter steps up, verse 28, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Now what do you make of that? Have you tried that? It's uncommon. But what are we to make of Peter doing this here? Actually, there's an enormous debate about that. So plenty of commentators say, Peter, presumptuous. You don't walk on water. God walks on water. Humans don't walk on water. It was a disaster waiting to happen, Peter. Um, here's a bad example here. Don't do it. Others would say, oh, here's the Christian life. you just got to get out of the boat. Get out of your boat. Get out of your boat. Tonight, get out of your boat. And do something crazy. Have you ever heard that? Get out of, I've heard that plenty of times in this passage. Get out of your boat and do something crazy. Well, the issue is I'm not in a boat. Um, <laughs> and the problem with both of those interpretations is, well, there's nothing here that suggests that. What does Jesus actually rebuke Peter for eventually? Verse 31. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? He doesn't say, Peter, why did you get out of the boat? He doesn't say that. Similarly, he doesn't commend Peter Peter, you got out of the boat. Good boy. That's what I want. Why aren't the rest of you getting out of your boat? There's no comment on that. So I don't think either of those are good enough, really. What do you make of this? Well, two things, to my mind, are obvious. The first is this. Jesus didn't pull Peter out of the storm. Let me explain that. Jesus didn't pull Peter out of the storm. Beginning this little passage, verse 22, Jesus has sent these disciples into the middle of a storm that they battle for hours. He's put them into a crisis to grow their faith. Now what happens when he actually encounters them? Look at the process in verse 31, the steps. One, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Immediately. Just as if, uh, sorry, just as in verse 27, Jesus had immediately spoken when he saw they were afraid. So the first thing Jesus does is he reaches out his hand. The second thing Jesus does is he rebukes him. Why did you doubt? The third thing Jesus does is he gets Peter to the boat. And then the fourth thing he does is he calms the storm. So what Jesus doesn't do is say, Peter, you're in a flap. Jump into the boat. Peter, you're in a flap. Let's chop the winds and the waves. He lets Peter battle on, but goes to him in the storm. Only when they're back does it end. Jesus has deliberately put these guys into a crisis. And when he meets Peter, he doesn't pull him out of the crisis, but he goes to him, meets him. Verse 31, holds out his hand to him. Look, obviously, you and I are not called to walk on water. You know, and I are not in a boat this evening. That much is obvious. But what is undoubtedly true, biblically, 
the Lord often sends us into the middle of a crisis to grow our faith. And whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, you should probably know by now, God doesn't pull you out of crisis here in this world. He lets us go through them quite often, it seems to me. But he's there in them. As we've sung already this evening, that marvellous hymn, just spectacular. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Look, you're going to go through the deep waters, but I'll be with you. They won't overwhelm you, I will be with you. And they will be good to you. They will be good for you. They will nurture your faith. God doesn't pull us out of crisis, but he is there. Let me just quote you a couple of emails I got this week. It seemed very relevant to me. The first. Uh, many would remember Richard Cokett. He used to be the senior minister here. Uh, last week, his 20-year-old daughter uh, was on holiday with university mates in Croatia, had a brain hemorrhage and a collapsed panic. Uh, uh, the wife went out to uh, 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 Croatia. Eventually, after a few days of not really having much access, they managed to get a medivaced home. So they got home on Friday. Tomorrow morning, they'll have the operation to remove um, a bunch of nerves that have collapsed uh, about the size of a raspberry in the front lobe. Pray. Pray their operation goes well. Email he sent out this week. In the midst of our distress, God has been our strength and our refuge. And once again, we've experienced that while our loving Father does not remove us from the struggles and crises of this world, he does send his people into them to be with us and support us wonderfully. It feels great to be followers of Christ this week. He doesn't pull us out of the crises. He's with us, often by his people. Uh, second one, others, uh, some others would remember uh, Tina and Aaron Chung. Uh, they were here for about six years. They're back, now back in Sydney. And uh, a little while ago, Tina uh, was diagnosed. She had a grade three cancer. She's currently in remission from that, having had eight rounds of uh, chemotherapy after the op. She wrote last week, How do I keep trusting God in this remission? How do I keep trusting God when I'm in so much pain? When I fear that my husband might be widowed, that my son might be left without his mama? I do so because there is great news that remains true no matter what. Our future is in God's hands, in the hands of a loving or powerful father, no matter what happens. Jesus has not pulled her out of the storm. She and her family are really in it, but she knows that he is with her. Jesus didn't pull Peter from the storm, but he is there. That's always true. Second thing more briefly, uh, don't look at the storm, look at Christ. It all goes wrong for Peter when he looks at the storm. So he makes a good start uh, to what's going on in verse uh, 29, gets out. He's trusting God in the crisis, I think that's the point here. But verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out in fear, just as they had done in verse 26, cried out in fear, same issue, same problem. Lord, save me. Jesus reached out his hands, called him. Here's the diagnosis. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? 
doubt. It's a fabulous little verb there in the Greek. It means divided in two. Why were you divided in two? Why? It's a fabulous picture, isn't it? Peter, you saw me. You knew you were safe because I was here. And then you looked at the storm. And you were... And then you lost it. You were divided in two. There's faith, but your fear conquered your faith. Now, if you're a Christian, that's a choice you have every day to make. You wake up tomorrow, and you can either look at the the, the daunting things. <gasps> Golly, look at what I've got to get done. <gasps> Golly, I'm starting a new job. <gasps> Golly, I'm off to university. <gasps> Golly, look, everyone around me is more talented than me, and I'm just, how am I ever going to make it here? You can look at all the daunting things, or you can look at Christ. And generally, we live our lives either problem-orientated or Christ-orientated. And if we look at the problems too much, then our faith wobbles. It's an obvious picture, isn't it? Why are you divided in two, says Jesus? I'm here. You don't need to be divided in two. You can trust me. So Jesus doesn't pull Peter from the storm. Don't look at the storm. I think those are the obvious things that you can take from that. The climax, the climax of the story comes in verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. It's the first time they've come out with that. So there is real progress here in the disciples' understanding. Truly you are the son of God. They're getting there. They're making progress. So there's a fearful faith, but they're walking. Walking fearfully. Mixture. Mixture again. Last thing, very briefly, you get these uh, funny crowd of Gennesaret and they're recognizing truly. Gennesaret, this is the only time Gennesaret appears in the New Testament. All we know about them is when Jesus went to visit, they responded brilliantly. That's all we know. Why are these verses here? Let me read them to you. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. That's not quite as exciting as feeding 5,000 or walking on water. Why? Why bother putting that in here? Because it is the last of the five responses that Matthew wants to record. Nazareth, the hometown, rejects him, too proud. Herod, the king, rejects him, demands too much of a change of lifestyle. The disciples, well, they're making progress, but there's a mixture. It's good and bad. Gennesaret, terrific. It's emphasized, you see it three times all. Verse 35, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him. Verse 36, all who touched him were healed. All. Universally, things are going well here. And Matthew says to us, what about you? What about you? What do you make? And how are you going to, what do you make of this man? How are you going to respond to this man? What about you? Now again, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, what do you make of him? How, what more do you need to know? Is, is, is it an issue? Is it a question? Reliability of the Bible? Suffering? Come on Wednesday. But really, look at this man, and he is worthy of your trust. What about you? Why not? Many of us will call ourselves Christians, of course. And we may well look at those disciples and think, yeah, five and two, 
quite hard to trust when you've got five and two and not a lot more. It's quite hard to count beyond seven. And Jesus, go on. Go on. You can trust me. Of course, we have what the disciples didn't have at this stage. We know of Jesus going to the cross and rising again. How much more reason do we have to trust the man who is God who did that for us? Go on, he says. You can trust me. Be like Gennesaret. Trust me. How are you going to respond to him? That's what Matthew's asking in chapter 14. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, our hearts are open before you. You know whether we are still uh, rejecting you and hostile. You know, perhaps for most of us, we're a mixture. At times we trust you, at times it's hard. At times the, the crises, the storms, just they overwhelm us and we find it hard to look at you. At times we doubt whether you can provide the resources we need in order to serve you. But Father, would we look to Christ? Would we see his wonderful compassion, his extraordinary power, and know once again that he is one that we can trust wholeheartedly with our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.